So we left off last time talking about, made one major point, which is the book of Job does one thing. It really introduces us to the enemy. Okay, we see Satan there at the beginning of the book, and we talked about Leviathan and the interesting description of Leviathan and how critical as we seek to understand suffering, if we don't incorporate an enemy, a cosmic conflict, I think it is very, very difficult to maintain a good, powerful God in a world where there's suffering. But we really uh, still haven't answered the question, well, why would God allow things like that to occur? Again, part of uh, what I wish we could spend more time on is the conversation between the three friends. Remember, at the end of the book, God comes along and says, well, Job, you've said of me what is right. And he rebuked the three friends. So there's a lot of interesting theology here that the friends bring up. I'll just mention a few examples in passing. But when we read the book of Job, understanding the beginning and the end of the book, and perhaps who inspired the three friends, it's interesting to consider what the friends mentioned. Eliphaz kept bringing this point up. Can anyone be righteous in the sight of God or be pure before his creator? God does not trust his heavenly servants. He finds fault even with his angels. And remember in the first chapter of Job, there were those encounters between Satan and God and specifically mentions that, the, that when the heavenly beings got together for this meeting. Okay, is it possible here that uh, there's even a, an implication here that, that might influence the angels? You know, God doesn't even trust his uh, angelic beings. He finds fault even with his angels. Do you think he will trust a creature of clay, a thing of dust that can be crushed like a moth? Okay, and again in Job 15, can human beings really be pure? Can anyone be right with God? Why, God does not trust even his angels. Even they are not pure in his sight. And we drink evil as if it were water. Yes, we are corrupt. We are worthless. Okay, and, and uh, you, you hear this concept brought up today. Uh, I thought we might spend some time on this, but we're going to skip over it. I would just mention briefly, what do, what do you think about the charge? God doesn't trust anyone. We are worthless. Is that true? Well, remember, Job chapter 1, God said of Job, he's perfect, blameless, upright, he's a good man. Now, he's worthless, I don't trust him, but he's perfect and upright. Would that make a lot of sense? Or we just go through the different people, hear God's own words here in Isaiah 41 about Abraham. He calls him Abraham, my friend. Now, I don't trust him, he's worthless. Uh, would that make sense? Or about Moses? where Moses would speak face-to-face -face with God as someone speaks with a friend, that God consider Moses to be worthless, untrustworthy. David, man after God's own heart. Here, I guess you could make a case that David wasn't always very trustworthy, but when the angel came to bring to Daniel a message, he said, Daniel, you are very precious to God, or you are greatly beloved by God. Okay, these, this doesn't indicate, it wouldn't seem, that God finds these individuals as worthless or untrustworthy. And then, of course, Jesus comes along and seems to elevate this. He doesn't want us, doesn't consider it the worth, worthless, of course. Doesn't even want us to become servants. Here's the ideal. I do not call you servants any longer because servants don't know what their master is doing. Instead, I call you friends. It's remarkable to think that God wants to relate to us on the level of uh, friendship. That would seem a contradiction to the claim that we're worthless. God doesn't trust us. 
Okay, and this, this concept comes up several times. Bildad in Job 25 said, then what about a human being, that worm, that insect? What is a human life worth in God's eyes? How would you answer the question? What is a human life worth in God's eyes? Well, again, if we you know, take the whole Bible here, of course, Job said, well, who inspired you to speak like this? And again, who indeed inspired some of these comments? Okay, and, and how can we say that human life is worthless in God's eyes when, of course, John 3.16, God so loved the world he's gave his only son, it would seem that human life is worth spending nine months in the womb for God and dying on a cross. That would seem to put a pretty high premium on uh, the value of a human life. Okay, so I, I think these, these arguments by the friends, they're, they're destructive. They're meant to separate Job from God. They're meant to break down his trust between Job and God. Okay, and Job fiercely, uh, it would appear to me, defended God in this conversation, did not agree with the argument of the friends. And just other things, briefly in passing. Eliphaz said, <clears throat> good people are glad and the innocent laugh when they see the wicked punished. And you have to be careful if you are, have a memory verse from the book of Job. Who spoke? Okay, who's talking? Is that true? And we could stack up so many verses here. God's own words here. The people I love are doing evil things. Again, the people are doing evil things. Does that mean God doesn't love them? Certainly, he doesn't love what they're doing, but he still loves them. Okay, and perhaps the clearest Old Testament verse for this is in Ezekiel 33. Tell them that as surely as I, the sovereign Lord and the living God, I do not enjoy seeing sinners die. I'd rather see them stop sinning and live. Israel, stop the evil you are doing. Why do you want to die? Okay, so again, these are things, if we use the Bible as a whole, we can say these arguments of the friends, they're faulty, they're destructive, they're harmful. Now, I'm just going to list one passage. Job complained. There's no question. He complained to God. So Job's complaints were, were pretty vicious. And so the, the assumption is, well, God was really offended by the way Job talked. I'll just give you an example here in chapter 19. Talking to the friends, you think you are better than I am and regard my troubles as proof of my guilt? Can't you see it is God who has done this? Now, we said last time it was Satan who left God's presence, who inflicted all of this on Job. But in a sense, isn't there some truth to this? God said of Job, he's a perfect and upright man. Okay, Satan, have at him. I mean, didn't God remove his protection around Job? So in a sense, uh, isn't it true that had God not, God was the one who initiated this conversation with Job. He set a trap to catch me. I protest his violence, but no one is listening. No one hears my cry for justice. He has taken away all my wealth and destroyed my reputation. God has made my own family forsake me. I'm a stranger to those who knew me. My relatives and friends are gone. Those who are guests in my house have forgotten me. My servant women treat me like a stranger and a foreigner. When I call a servant, he doesn't answer. Even when I beg him to help me, my wife can't stand the smell of my breath. And my own brothers won't come near me. Children despise me and laugh when they see me. My closest friends look at me with disgust. Those I loved have turned against me. My skin hangs loose on my bones. I have barely escaped with my life. You are my friends. Take pity on me. I mean, they're hammering him for 30 chapters here. Take pity on me. How I wish that someone would remember my words and record them in a book. 
or with a chisel, carve my words in stone and write them so that they would last forever. Okay, and little did Job know that his words would be recorded and talked about for thousands of years. But here's what I find remarkable. In the midst of all of this, and, and if you've been here when we've talked about the complaints of Abraham and Moses, which were very pointed, I have to say Moses in some places, more direct and confrontational here than Job is, okay, and we don't have any uh, implication there that, that God was really upset, but in the midst of all this, Job really exhibits an incredible trust in God. But I know there is someone in heaven who will come at last to my defense. Even after my skin is eaten by disease, while still in this body, I will see God. I will see him with my own eyes, and he will not be a stranger. I still rebel and complain against God. I cannot keep from groaning. How I wish I knew where to find him and knew how to go where he is. I would state my case before him and present all the arguments in my favor. I want to know what he would say and how he would answer me. Would God use all his strength against me? No, he would listen as I spoke. I mean, does he have an incredible picture of God? We, you can talk with God as with a friend. I am honest. I could reason with God. He would declare me innocent once and for all. And of course, in the end, very end of the book, he says, God says of Job, you said of me what is right. Okay, but it would seem to me, it, 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 so much of what comes through is there was one thing that was most painful to Job. And that was, he knew God as a friend, and God seemed absent, and he couldn't understand why. He would say, I have searched in the east, but God is not there. I've not found him when I searched in the west. God has been at work in the north and the south, but still I have not seen him. Yet God knows every step I take. If he tests me, he will find me pure, but he couldn't understand. Where are you, God? If only my life could once again be as it was when God watched over me. God was always with me then and gave me light as I walked through the darkness. Those were the days when I was prosperous and the friendship of God protected my home. He couldn't understand why God seemed to have left him. He had no evidence that God was still there. And perhaps just the most incredible verse in this context that he could say, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And I think the book of Job really should be an example to us that in, in the darkest times, when it seems like, you know, where, where is the evidence? God, you don't seem to be doing anything. Uh, to exhibit this attitude, I'm going to maintain trust in God despite no evidence of his presence. He doesn't seem to be doing what makes sense to me in this situation. Uh, to maintain trust, that, that's a remarkable thing. So Job's last words before uh, the last, uh, the fourth individual comes on the scene, he said, will no one listen to what I'm saying? I swear that every word is true. Let Almighty God answer me. If the charges my opponent brings against me were written down so I could see them, I'd wear them proudly on my shoulder and place them on my head like a crown. I would tell God everything I've done and hold my head high in his presence. And then the last individual who uh, comes to talk to Job is Elihu. And this is the part I wish we had more time to, to go into because the, the things that Elihu says are very, very curious. But I'll just uh, say one thing he clearly rebukes Job for is you can't talk to God the way you're talking to God, Job. Uh, Elihu would say, I won't ask to speak with God. Why should I give him a chance to destroy me? 
Job, you can't talk with God that way. Uh, God zaps people for saying the, the things that you've said to God. God's power is so great that we cannot come near him. And we just read Job's words. I wish I could have a conversation with God. We could get all this cleared up. I'd hear the accusations. We'd hash it out. God wouldn't use his power against me. Okay, and, and Elihu was, was quite offended by that position. No wonder then that everyone is awed by him and that he ignores those who claim to be wise, as you claim to be, Job. And it's interesting, Elihu even talks about God coming in a storm. And so what does God do? He comes in a storm. And uh, again, this is the, the part I'd, I'd encourage you to, to read the article on the website. Why did God come in a storm? But I want to go back to... Uh, uh, pick off from where we left last time. We talked about the importance of seeing Job highlights that there is an enemy. And we talked about why God allows the enemy to exist. When we went through Genesis, we discussed why didn't God just eliminate Satan when he had the chance, prevent this whole thing from spilling over to planet Earth. Okay, some of the things we suggested would be, well, if you were an angel and all of a sudden, where's Lucifer? Well, God eliminated him. And how would you feel? Would that stimulate your trust in God? Or wouldn't that be something that would even uh, worsen the rebellion? Our question really from the book of Job, though, is why does God allow the enemy's kingdom to dominate this planet so much? Why do we see such injustice? Good people. Okay, Job uh, certainly got the brunt of it, but we could, probably all of us could give examples of things that have happened to uh, people who love God, trust him, that seem unfair. Well, let's just go through, maybe list some examples. I mentioned last time 9-11, where it was often asked, you know, where was God? Why didn't God, couldn't God have intervened? Of course he has the power. Why didn't he? And I think to, to answer these questions, we, we'd need to go all the way back. Let's just say, take the, the life of the individuals who hijacked the planes. Again, I think we could say very definitely, taking the Bible as a whole, that Every individual on this planet is very precious to God. God is working with an intensity on every mind of every person. And so for those hijackers, as children, you know, I'm sure God saw their mind and their theology going in the wrong direction. Okay, of course, these people hijacked planes. It wasn't because they didn't believe in God. It was because they did believe in God. But their picture of God was such that they thought uh, he would be pleased to have them do this. Okay, so could God have intervened uh, differently? And really, I would say the only thing he could have done against their will, perhaps, to rewire their brains. Okay, but God never seems to be willing to, to be the puppet master. Um, could he have done other, other things when they tried to come over to America? Perhaps could have blocked them from getting on the planes. They tried a hundred times and something always happened. They could never make it over. Or when they came over here and they try, tried to uh, enroll in flight school, Every single time, it just never happened. Went all through different ways. Uh, they could never get uh, enrolled in the flight training that was necessary. Or when they got on the planes, couldn't God have in each case stopped them at the airport? Okay, and, and they did this a thousand times and miraculously every single time it just never worked out. Or couldn't God have at least have made sure that uh, on those days only bad people got on the planes? Okay, never was ever a, a good person that was hurt by uh, these things that would happen. And, and I think we begin to see that how many strings would God need to pull in order to prevent uh, the chaos 
that is on this planet, the rebellion, uh, to prevent that from having any consequences. Pretty soon God would be pulling all the strings. Maybe just give one other example. Drunk drivers who run into and kill innocent people. And again, we just imagine here this individual drunk driver who ran head-on into a family here in a van. Couldn't God eliminate all alcohol? It's not possible. We, just, we can't distill it. It's not possible to make alcohol. No one could ever get drunk. Certainly God could do that. Um, couldn't God have prevented alcoholics? On every day they would get in an accident, their cars don't start on those days. Or couldn't God, uh, you know, it's interesting, we've looked at the last 300,000 alcoholic accidents, and it's a strange thing, but they always just run into trees. There's, there's never anyone else that they run into. No one's ever hurt by drunk drivers. It's a weird thing. They just run into trees all the time. Um, again, how many strings do we want God to pull in the world so that there are never negative consequences of people that do uh, rebellious things? And I thought of an example. I'm not sure if this fits, but, but we're going to try. Most of you are uh, done with the neuroscience course. But let's just imagine here as your neuroscience teacher that I am omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. And I've told you I'd really like you to read this book and to study and I'm aware of the detail of how much work each one of you are doing in the neuroscience course. And you know, you begin to notice something rather unusual. If you spend three or four hours every evening studying neuroscience, you really put a lot into it, that, um, wow, flowers show up with a, a little card doing a great job from Dr. Cole. Okay? <laughs> and you know, that this happens repeatedly. And uh, you know, other classmates who maybe skip a few days and don't study, well, they don't get flowers. Okay, and this goes on, and uh, for those that do really well on the test, you wake up in the morning, and there's a pile of money. Okay, and so, yeah, there's, there's really a reward. It really pays off to study neuroscience. Okay, and, but what would happen? Let's say we have uh, someone who maybe doesn't study for four days, five days, a week, 10 days, you really get behind, miss a few lectures, and you get out to get in your car, and there's a brick thrown through the window. <laughs> and there's a little note, a threatening note from Dr. Cole for, for not studying. Okay? Uh, how would you feel about me as a teacher using those kinds of methods? And what we notice over time is that the individuals who really put a lot in the neuroscience, boy, they're healthy. I mean, they practically float to work and to, to school. Um, skin seems to... They get younger, become uh, energetic, and it's really amazing. It, but at the same time, the people who uh, just really, they don't like these methods, perhaps have decided uh, they really don't like neuroscience, uh, they seem to age prematurely, and, uh, and bad things seem to happen to them all the time, end up having uh, whatever uh, uh, appearance here. But uh, this is a ridiculous parallel, but should... People who trust in God, people who love God, people who have a right picture of God, should they all, in every case, live to the age of 120, never get sick, nothing bad ever happens, and bad people die of heart attacks in their 40s? Um, would you like a God that pulled strings and intervened in this way? Uh, I mean, he may as well have made robots. So we have this situation here of freedom, free will, and really love and free will have to go hand in hand. Okay, it's, uh, the two have to go together. 
God takes away our freedom, is love really possible? We read last time, God makes his sun to shine on bad and good people alike and gives rain to those who do good and those who do evil. Okay, again, be the same way for a teacher. You give every opportunity to every student. In fact, the students who are struggling may get more opportunity, more private time to perhaps go over and and ask questions. You work harder uh, on those students. And and I think we could make a case for that from God's perspective as well. I want to go through a a whole bunch of quotes because I think this is such an important concept here about freedom, free will, and why God cannot pull strings as much as we might like him to. In the work of redemption, there is no compulsion. No external force is employed. Under the influence of the Spirit of God, man is left free to choose whom he will serve. In the change that takes place when the soul surrenders to Christ, there is the highest sense of freedom. Because if it's done in any other way, if you're forced or arm-twisted, and I just imagine this uh, in a relationship, it just doesn't work. I think I've given you the the illustration of a man proposing to a wife, takes him out to a nice restaurant, proposes. She hesitates for a minute, and he puts a a gun on the table. Okay? Uh, The the minute that that freedom is broken, love goes away. You restrict freedom, uh, love diminishes in proportion. Okay? Don't try that. God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easily as one casts a pebble to the earth. Okay, there's no lack of strength here from God's perspective. But he did not do this. Rebellion was not to be overcome by force. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. That's quite a claim. Compelling power is found only under Satan's government. The Lord's principles are not of this order. His authority rests on goodness, mercy, and love. And the presentation of these principles is the means to be used. God's government is moral, and truth and love are to be the prevailing power, which is why the only way to defeat Satan's kingdom was to do it in the way Jesus did it, okay, just to eliminate him and those who would, would follow uh, his kingdom, Satan's kingdom. Uh, it wouldn't work, and that's not God's character to do it that way. The man who attempts, and we could go back here to our neuroscience illustration, the man who attempts to keep the commandments of God from a sense of obligation, study from obligation, merely because he's required to do so, will never enter into the joy of obedience. In fact, he does not obey. When the requirements of God are accounted a burden because they cut across human inclination, we may know that the life is not a Christian life. True obedience is the outworking of a principle from within. It springs from the love of righteousness, the love of the law of God. What does all law ask us? To love others, love God. The essence of all righteousness is loyalty to our Redeemer. This will lead us to do right because it is right and because right doing is pleasing to God. And again, as a parent, this makes so much sense to me. You know, God has used the reward-punishment method, no question. Just as you might with immature children, you use rewards and punishments. But uh, that has to progress. Um, Dorothy and I, with our kids, at times, they don't like to study at all, sometimes. They just, especially our boys. Actually, our daughter loves studying, for whatever reason. But uh, our two boys would, would rather do just about anything else. And so sometimes, sure, they would study. We'd go out for frozen yogurt or something like that as a, as a reward. But then what you'll notice is, you know, Dad, I did a page of math. Can we go buy a toy? 
And uh, th th then there, you know, you, you have to progress beyond that. Again, imagine your child is in college or medical school and calls his parents. Hey, I studied hard today. Could, could you reward me? Is there anything uh, you can do? Um, you'd be rather discouraged as a parent. Okay? And, and even doing what is right because we love God, and that has to be there, that really is not the highest reason to obey. Okay? Because imagine again your child calls from college and says, Dad, I study. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know why I study, but I love you, so I'm studying. What you really like is that uh, people grow up and they do what is right because it makes sense. Okay? And God's kingdom makes sense. So ultimately, he wants us to do what is right because it's what we want to do. And it makes all the sense in the world. A few more. A sullen submission to the will of the Father will de develop the character of a rebel, even as one obeys. By such a one, service is looked upon as drudgery. It is not rendered cheerfully and in the love of God. It is a mere mechanical performance. Notice, if he dared, such a one would disobey. His rebellion is smothered, ready to break out at any time in bitter murmurings and complaints. Such service brings no peace or quietude to the soul. Pharisees are such a good example. They were obeying every rule. They made an extra list of rules to help them obey. But were they rebels at heart? Uh, deep down, I mean, they saw Jesus and hated him, despite the fact they were keeping the list. All right, so here's the point. Omnipotence, as we normally think of it, is just power, physical power is not to be understood as the power of unlimited coercion, but as the power of infinite persuasion, the invincible power of self-negating, self-sacrificial love. So we want to see omnipotence. Uh, that's on display at the cross. That is real power. And Gandhi would say, power is of two kinds. One is obtained by the fear of punishment and the other by acts of love. Power based on love is a thousand times more effective and permanent than the one derived from fear of, of punishment. Okay, so God's ability to impact our planet, I mean, sure, he could show up as a big 30-foot you know, fire tower in Loma Linda. We'd all be probably obeying much better than we do now, but is, that doesn't last. Okay, fear is, does not stimulate love. Only love awakens love within us. So as we consider Jesus, and we read last time, why did Jesus come? Appeared for this very reason, to destroy what the devil had done. He became like them. He did this so that through his death he might destroy the devil. This was the only way, the unthinkable way, to defeat Satan's kingdom. To expose the enemy, to reveal his own character, to win us in a non-coercive manner. And here's a good description of this. The earth was dark through misapprehension of God, that the gloomy shadows might be lightened, that the world might be brought back to God, Satan's deceptive power was to be broken. This could not be done by force. Again, the exercise of force is contrary to the principles of God's government. He desires only the service of love, and love cannot be commanded. It cannot be won by force or authority. Only by love is love awakened. To know God is to love him. His character must be manifested in contrast to the character of Satan. And, and that, at the cross especially, it's such a night and day difference between the two characters. This work only one being in all the universe could do. Only he who knew the height and depth of the love of God could make it known. Upon the world's dark night, the Son of Righteousness must rise with healing in his wings. And um, 
Sigvi Tonstead, if, if you uh, have a chance to read his book maybe this summer, it's called Saving God's Reputation. Um, he has a, a really good quote that, that ties in with this. It's rather challenging, but I think uh, quite profound. Sigvi would say, as a deceiver, Satan wins support for his cause and program by something other than what he truly represents. That would be a good definition of a deceiver, right? Pretends to represent one thing, in actuality represents something else. If this is the case, the simple demolition of the deceiver will not suffice unless or until his true character has become manifest. Such a perception of the cosmic conflict depends on the presentation of evidence for its resolution. To the extent that the deceiver wins support by purporting to be what he is not, he must be unmasked by evidence to the contrary, that is, by the evidence of his own actual deeds. Okay, now here's the challenge. The crucial point relates to the fact that a conflict of this nature cannot be resolved by force. Inevitably, this requirement exposes at least one troubling risk that is intrinsic to the non-use of force. If the deceiver is partly to be unmasked by the evidence of his own actions, it means that he will be granted the opportunity to bring his design to fruition. And I think that's, that's what we see on planet Earth. Satan must be allowed to commit evil for his evil character to be manifest. The political risk to the divine government of this projected policy, not to mention the theological risk, hardly needs to be elaborated. Is it a risk? Yes. What do people ask in the world today? Uh, they can't understand. Why does God allow this? Okay, but again, as we went back to those examples, if God prevented every consequence of rebellion, would we really understand it? Would we really see the clear nature of rebellion? Okay, so uh, a few more quotes here, this time from Screwtape Letters. I think I've recommended this book before. It's, it's fascinating. It's written from the devil's perspective on how to tempt humans. Okay, and we have this conversation here between uh, two devils, and they're talking about the, these low points in life that uh, the humans have. Okay, okay, when you read about the enemy here, that's, they're referring to God, because again, it's from the devil's perspective. Okay, this ties in very well with the book of Job. You must have often wondered why the enemy does not make more use of his power to be sensibly present to human souls in any degree he chooses and at any moment. But you now see that the irresistible and the indisputable, in other words, the coercive, overwhelming power, that these things are two weapons which the very nature of his scheme forbids him to use. Merely to override a human will, as his presence in any but the faintest and most mitigated degree would certainly do, would be for him useless. He cannot ravish. He can only woo. For his ignoble idea is to eat the cake and have it. The creatures are to be one with him, but yet themselves. Merely to cancel them or assimilate them will not serve. He is prepared to do a little overriding at the beginning. He will set them off, and this is referring to God, with communications of his presence, which, though faint, seem great to them, with emotional sweetness and easy conquest over temptation, but he never allows this state of affairs to last long. Sooner or later he withdraws, if not in fact, at least from their conscious experience, all those supports and incentives. He leaves the creatures to stand up on its own legs. It is during such trough periods, much more than during the peak periods, that it is growing into the sort of creature he wants it to be. Hence the prayers offered in the state of dryness are those which please him best. 
He cannot tempt to virtue as we do to vice. He wants them to learn to walk and must therefore take away his hand. And if only the will to walk is really there, he is pleased, even with their stumbles. Do not be deceived, Wormwood, the other deceiver. Our cause is never more in danger than when a human, like Job, no longer desiring but intending to do our enemy's will, looks round upon a universe which every trace of him seems to have vanished and asks why he has been forsaken and still obeys. I think that's the point of Job. We see this, uh, Job lost everything, but yet he maintained this incredible trust in God. I think that's the, the point of the book. So if we try to introduce Jesus and Job, remember Job said, I will see my Redeemer. And we try to introduce the two. I think Job would be quite pleased, or perhaps stunned would be a better uh, word, to see that God would become a human and that the devil would encounter God and would ask him, if you are God's son, order these stones to turn into bread. No one intervened for Job with power. Okay, and here we see God himself not using his power. The, again, the non-use of miracles. All the miracles of Jesus, they were never for self. They were always for others. Okay, this was a, a challenge, really. Come on, use your power. Okay, use your power. You're just like a, the claim against Job. And of course, Jesus saw through that. Didn't use his power. And Jesus said, the scripture says, human beings cannot live on bread alone, but need every word that God speaks. Hey, Jesus is our example here. Having access to all power, but not using it for selfish reasons. And the devil took him up to a highest point and said, if you are God's son, throw yourself down. Use your power. Okay, and if God, if Jesus had done that, you can be sure. I mean, Satan would have said, see, look, he's just coming down there. He's using his power. The humans don't have access to this. It's unfair. Okay, again, Jesus quotes scripture. And we won't read through these, but again and again and again, the people said to Jesus, use your power. We want to see you perform a miracle. It's repeated so many times. Never did it. Okay, all of his miracles. There isn't a, a one that wasn't for the benefit of others, not for self. And all of this, the claim, please do a miracle, show your power, then we'll be satisfied, uh, came right up to the cross where the people insulted Jesus. You are going to tear down the temple and build it back up in three days. Save yourself. Use your power if you are God's son. Okay, Job would have gained from this uh, perspective to know that the one that came to him in the storm would himself become a human and would himself refuse to use power. I mean, some have said the greatest miracles of Jesus were his non-use of miracles. Having the power could have called legions of angels and not using it. Okay, so just in conclusion, when we think about our world and suffering, we consider here a woman who lost her son, and we wonder how could God have allowed that to happen. There, there's really only one time in human history where we can say this is God's will, and that's in the three and a half years of Jesus' ministry. Uh, that's when we see God's will, and we could list so many examples. I'll just list a couple. What is God's will in the situation? Well, Jesus stumbled upon, well, probably didn't stumble, but he came upon a, a funeral. Probably no uh, happen chance. And just as he arrived at the gate of the town, a funeral procession was coming out. The dead man was the only son of a woman who was a widow, and a large crowd from the town was with her. When the Lord saw her, his heart was filled with pity for her, and he said to her, don't cry. And of course, he resurrected 
her son. He wasn't asked to do this miracle. He, his heart was filled with pity, and he, he raised her son. We could use this to say that God's attitude towards everything that happens like that, a son who was killed uh, in some uh, shooting or whatever it was, that God's heart for that situation is filled with pity and desire to do what he did here. We consider the problem of uh, children suffering and starving. It's, it's a small little uh, something we might not pick up, but it's in the story of uh, Jairus' daughter. Remember, she was dead. And Jesus came, he took her by the hand. He raised her up. Little girl, I tell you to get up. She got up at once and started walking around. She was 12. And when this happened, they were completely amazed. But Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone. And he said, and I love this last little part, get her something to eat. Now you would think he's done his job, he's done his miracle, they can feed her. But the, the one concerned about the girl's hungry is Jesus. So can't we apply that back and say that for every starving child, obviously God is concerned here about this girl's hunger. He's concerned about every injustice that occurs to children throughout the world. We see that in Jesus. Jesus fixed all of those problems. Okay, didn't leave a single suffering person. Healed them all. You see patients in the ICU who say, I don't want to die. They're scared to death. Okay, what can you say to them? What is God's attitude toward disease and suffering? Again, in Jesus, it is very clear. Let me just give one of many examples. A man suffering from a dreaded skin disease came to Jesus, knelt down, begged him for help. If you want to, he said, you can make me clean. Does God want to heal disease and suffering? Well, here's the answer. Jesus was filled with pity. Again, God is filled with pity and every example of this. And in this case, he reached out and touched him. I do want to, he answered, be clean. Yet in those three and a half years, we see God's will in every case of injustice. So I would like to just conclude, because I hope I'm not leaving the, the suggestion here that, well, we're all at the whim of uh, the devil and any of us could uh, drop down at any moment and we don't have any uh, say in the matter, because I don't think that's true at all. I think we really underestimate um, what the role that we do have to play in this cosmic conflict. And if I could just conclude with a point about prayer. In James 5, the prayer of a good person has a powerful effect. That is absolutely true. In the setting of a cosmic conflict, prayer, our connection with God, our alignment with God's will in the world, it has, I think, an incredible impact on everything around us. And I'm just going to give one example. I think it's a good one to conclude a year of a Bible study because it's kind of the, the big point, perhaps, that I've been trying to make. And that's the story of Daniel. Remember, Daniel had this big prayer. He wanted the Jews to return to Jerusalem. God didn't answer his prayer. 21 days. Couldn't understand it. Prayed, fasted. The angel came and said, Daniel, I've come in answer to your prayer. And he pulls back a curtain that we do not have access to understanding much of the injustice in the world. And he described to Daniel, this is what's been going on since you prayed. Okay, how do you imagine this? It's, it's really incredible. The angel prince, this is angel talking. The angel prince of the kingdom of Persia, or the spirit prince of the kingdom of Persia, opposed me for 21 days. And then Michael, one of the chief angels, came to help me. 
And now I have to go back and fight the guardian angel of Persia. Who are these individuals? And after that, the guardian angel of Greece will appear. There is no one to help me except Michael, Israel's guardian angel. He is responsible for helping and defending me. And where was this war taking place between these angelic beings? Uh, very clear from this context that the issue was, is Cyrus going to allow the Jews to uh, rebuild uh, the temple in Jerusalem? This was really a conflict going on within the mind of Cyrus. And what we see here is Daniel's prayer, I mean, it impacts the whole cosmic uh, conflict. We see opposing forces being brought into play because Daniel prayed. So I think uh, we really underestimate how much impact we can have in the world. When we pray, when we align ourselves with God's will, with God's character, uh, I think we literally can move mountains in this conflict. So let's pray as we close. <clears throat> Dear Father, I ask uh, that for each one of these students, that their journey to you uh, during the next weeks and months and years, that they would continually come closer to you, that their understanding of you would grow, and that it would not just be an intellectual knowledge, a book knowledge, but that would ultimately be lived out in the way they treat people around them, the way they treat patients, that people would get a glimpse of Jesus through each one of them. Amen.